Watch it, boys racing. Yeah, we got and go hot. And go hot. Very good. The Paddler's Pod with Sam and Mecca. This is big. It's a big one. It's a huge one for us here on the Paddler's Pod because we are joined by a very special guest, a very special friend as well. I was actually pretty shocked when I looked back and saw the fact that he hadn't been on the podcast already because I think, in my eyes, he's the most obvious surf ski paddler to get on here because he loves it so much. Austin Kiefer, welcome to the Paddler's Pod. Mate, such an introduction. I appreciate it. I feel like uh, I've been saving this up for a long time, but, <laughs> you know, long-time listener, first-time uh, caller. So <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and, and can't wait to, to dig into a, a Paddler's Pod with you. Well, you're not even a caller today. You are a guest host, and we don't have many of those. You're stepping into the seat left by Macker, and mate, I know you're going to do an outstanding job talking all things paddling. Yeah, sure. Thanks for uh, setting me up so uh, for a big fall, but hopefully not. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm, I'm saddened that Macca won't be on joining us. Uh, I've got big shoes to fill, but I'll do my very best as a, a stand-in guest host. Look, just quietly, Macca did actually get in touch with me last week and said, mate, I'm clear of work. I'm ready to get back into recording the podcast. And I said, well, you're going to have to wait another week because I've got Austin lined up and I'm not going <laughs> to, we're going to make sure that we get this one done. Oh man, devastating. Like truly, uh, truly, I mean, oh man, uh, I'm sorry, Mecca. You know, I love you and I am, and I'm not coming for your spot. You're the, you know, you're the, the king up there with Sam. So I'm just stepping in and, and trying to be, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, maybe a steward. I'll be the steward of your throne. Here we go. I like that. Now, Austin, America's, well, I'm going to say America's fastest surf ski paddler. Whereabouts are you coming to us from today? I'm actually coming to you from LA, Santa Monica area specifically. You're living down there now, are you? I am. I'm hard. It's even hard for my parents to keep track of me, so understandable if uh, if no one else knows. <laughs> but yeah. How long have you been down there for? Moved here in September, so it's been uh, you know it's been about five ish months now. And how are you finding it? Man, loving it. I was spent. I, and for those who don't know, my wife and I moved up to the mountains of SoCal. It, it's kind of shocking for many people to, to realize that there are those um, that exist. Uh, but we were we kind of moved away from the coast and lived on a little lake up in the mountains, uh, still in Southern California. And it was it was a great time. But I tell you what, I, I missed the ocean. And, and it's really special to be back here and, and to be falling in love with surf ski again and I've uh, been really enjoying it. So you're not just back at the ocean. You, you've got the full rock star set up now, paddling in LA. Yeah, truly. Uh, I know. I. Uh, it's quite the quite the experience living in LA, but I, I've been enjoying it so far. <laughs> I actually saw it. You did a downwind the other day past Malibu. Is that right? Like you're often paddling around Malibu Beach. Yeah. So the, my put in uh, is is kind of right a uh, little bit south of Malibu, and and often I'll just paddle up the coast around there. So it actually might blow again this weekend. So fingers crossed, I might do that downwind again this weekend. I know no one else wants to hear that, but I'm pumped oh. about it because they're they're rare. They're rare here in SoCal. What about our celebrity spotting? How's that been going? <laughs> you know what? I, I haven't bumped into any celebrities yet, but uh, fingers crossed it'll happen. I'm in the right place for it. Now I just got to get out of my house. When they see you, they'll be saying, I saw the great Austin Kiefer. Yeah. Now as heard on the Pudders pod sure, as well. I'm yeah, sure they, they will. certainly will be. So Austin, <laughs> mate, thank you so much for taking the time out of your A-list celebrity lifestyle to join us on the podcast, mate. We've got actually a lot to talk about today. I'm really excited to get stuck into it because I know how much of a passionate paddler you are. So let's do it. No time like now, hey? Absolutely. Let's get into it. I am thrilled to be a part of the Paddler's Pod, and let's get into the meat and potatoes of this thing. The Paddler's Pod. Power Plays. The Power Plays on this episode brought to you again by Wash Rider. Number three. We said a couple of episodes ago that we would get an update from Bonnie Hancock as soon as she was back on the grid with internet and social media on how her paddle around Australia has been going. And she's done that. Bonnie's been kind enough to 
Give us an update and let's check in with that now because, wow, there is a lot to talk about on the other side. Hey, Sam and Maka and all of the paddlers out there listening to the amazing Paddlers Pod. Uh, this is Bonnie Hancock here uh, giving you a, a recap of the Shoreham Partners Paddle of Oz so far. Uh, we're just over two months into the adventure. We left on the 19th of December and uh, we're here now in Albany in Western Australia. We just recently crossed the Great Australian Bight, which was over a thousand kilometres. And we took the direct line across. Uh, I believe we're the first people to ever do that. It was... Uh, an experience that I'll certainly never, ever forget. It was so much harder than I ever would have imagined. Uh, it took 14 days all up and I was seasick for, for 13 of those 14 days. And uh, I believe I lost uh, around seven or eight kilos in that time, uh, being unable to to keep food down. I was extremely dehydrated and had to check into uh, Esperance Hospital when we got in and, and get some IV uh, fluids with sodium, potassium and, and calcium. And uh, yeah, during the time we got some fantastic downwind conditions. The swells were two to five meters. We had 25 knot winds at some stages. It was the the absolute ideal conditions. It's what we always hoped for, but we had to come onto the boat. Uh, you know, I had to come onto the boat in the in the rest times and and I was unable to get any reprieve from, from the seasickness. So I was hanging over the boat for a lot of the time. But uh, really, really happy we did that. We saved over a 1,000 kilometres by paddling across the Great Australian Bight. And uh, stoked to be here in WA. We had a couple of challenges uh, getting into WA with WA health changing the goalposts all the time. But we were able to isolate uh, across the Great Australian Bight for 14 days. So we only had contact with the seven of us crew while we were out there. And we're making a, a joke that you start to go a little bit mad by the end. So wonderful to get to solid ground. And uh, yeah, the adventure has been fantastic um, so far. I've been overwhelmed by the love and support that's been coming in. Uh, you know, the body's holding together okay. And it's certainly been very, very challenging mentally a lot of the days. And I'm really grateful for my support for team for propping me up. And, you know, I've had near misses with hypothermia a couple of times. I've done night paddling where I'm paddling uh, four or five hours into the pitch black dark and, and fall off in the middle of the water and uh, in the middle of the ocean. And the boat, you know, can only slow down so much. So you end up 500 metres behind the boat in the middle of the ocean in the pitch black dark. And blowing your whistle to, to tell them that you're okay. So, which reminds me a bit of Titanic, but uh, there's certainly some some interesting moments out there. And uh, I've seen a lot of dolphins. I've paddled with dolphins. I've paddled with seals, penguins. I haven't seen any whales or sharks. The crew have seen sharks close to me. We've been pretty lucky, but we're coming into crocodile territory soon up the top of WA near Broome. So that then becomes the next challenge. And uh, you know, we're going to stay probably a little bit further off the coast than we'd we'd normally like and add a bit of distance to actually stay away from the riverbeds and the estuaries. So you don't want to be coming in close um, in some of the bits of land in WA because the crocodiles do hang in there. Uh, I do have my heavier ski, the plastic ski, that Nordic do, uh, as a backup option for if it gets a bit hectic and there's crocs around you don't want to be on a nine kilo nitro that I paddle obviously it's very easy to bump and you know fall off with the bumps uh, but yeah we're about to turn the southwestern corner which is really exciting head up the WA coastline hopefully see some whale sharks at Ningaloo um, you know a month or two to get up the coast then we're into uh, the top part and, and the northern territory where uh, heat stroke then becomes more of a concern than the cold so it's about dealing with different challenges. Um, you know, most days I'm still in a calorie deficit. I'm really, really struggling to get enough food in. It's between 5,000 and 10,000 calories that I'm actually burning. So it's extremely hard to meet. Uh, still doing most days over 100K. So my biggest has been 150 in, in 24 hours across the bite. Uh, in one paddle, the furthest I've done is 144K, which was all through the day, uh, daylight right into the the night time. So 
Uh, yeah, as I said, body's holding together well. The biggest concern is my fingers. I've lost feeling in a couple of them and the feeling sort of comes back on the days off, but not quite. So hopefully no long-term damage. I'm sure it's just a bit of uh, stuff happening with the muscles and the nerves at the moment. Um, and I wear gloves and booties every day, so I haven't had blisters. Um, so it's been really interesting working through those different things. Uh, thank you for the love and support. I'm so appreciative. Uh, gotcha for Life is is our charity and that's that's the greater purpose to this project. That's what it's all about. We're raising funds and awareness for the wonderful work that we're, they're doing in, in working towards their mission for zero suicide. So if anyone uh, has a bit of spare change, if you can jump on, all of the information is in the uh, link tree in my bio. You can go to that and find the Gotcha for Life page. We've raised over 15 and a half thousand dollars so far i'd be so incredibly grateful if you can contribute gus warald and the team are doing an amazing job uh, and that's what this project is all about and about much more than a world record so thank you so much and i look forward to uh talking to you all soon and uh, and catching up thanks guys wow that is unbelievable from bonnie 14 days crossing the great australian bite in a straight line 400 kilometers out to sea and she had seasickness for 13 of those 14 days. Austin, somehow she still got through all of that. Soon as she did get to Esperance, she went straight to hospital and on an intravenous trip. That is unbelievable mental strength for Bonnie to survive that stretch as strong as she did. Yeah, I mean, uh, speechless. Uh, that's pretty much all I have to say. Her entire adventure has been harrowing to say the least oh. and it's been really special to watch the clips we get to see and, and follow along on her journey I, I saw some clips of her shredding downwinds and and hearing about her logging you know day after day of 100 plus kilometer paddles which just by itself is staggering and then when you think about crossing that far from land and battling with seasickness and continuing to push through it, it's, it's truly inspiring. And I, I really hope that she's recovering and mending well and, and is back on the journey soon. But just hard to put into words what an incredible two-week period that must have been. And the fact that she was able to do it is impressive. She makes it sound so casual, doesn't she? Talking about how she's <laughs> borderline hypothermic a few times throughout her trip, how she's been paddling at night time and has at times been falling out of her ski in the middle of the night, 400 k's off the coast, pitch black, and just casually blowing her whistle to let her crew know that she's all okay and she's going to get back in the boat. Like She is facing some unbelievable adversity on this trip. Even, no wonder she's not fussed about the threat of crocodiles at the top end of Western Australia saying, oh yeah, I'm going to paddle a bit further out to sea. I'm going to paddle for a bit longer just to avoid some crocodiles. And I might paddle my plastic boat just in case one of them decides to try and bite through it. They might find that a bit more difficult. Man, that is, I tell you what, when she gets home, she's never going to be worried about whether the wind's blowing strong enough again, is she, for a downwinder. Uh, <laughs> I, I could, that was, you know, that was exactly what I wanted to say was, it makes me feel so soft, you know, as far as like the complaints that I have when it comes to, you know, I'm going out for a paddle and, oh, it's a little chilly or, you know, the wind was predicted to be this and it only came through as this or, you know, I didn't have the the right nutrition for my, my session today. It just, it just the magnitude of the things that she's dealing with. And I think what really struck me was how casually she lists off these setbacks or challenges that would have put anyone else, you know, not even considering doing the thing to begin with. And they're just, you know, yeah, another casual thing that she's overcoming. No big deal. It's, again, such an impressive journey and, and every little piece of detail that we we get to hear from her really just increases my respect for her and, and the, the undertaking that she's going. Oh, absolutely. It's great to have Bonnie back on the grid and back on social media now as well, because she's been already giving us some really great updates since she has got back in the boat and kept moving. 130 kilometers straight she paddled last week. And on top of that too, she had a really interesting post about body image and the way that her body has changed and 
developed throughout this trip as well as it adapts to the unbelievable workload that she's putting it through saying well I guess she she said it a little bit there in that recording that throughout the Great Australian Bite she lost about seven or eight kilos but even in that first kind of few weeks when she left the Gold Coast she already lost about 10 kilograms so that must be a really difficult part of it as well just making sure that she doesn't continue to lose weight every single day and making sure that she's eating the right foods. Lucky that she's a nutritionist, Austin. Yeah, I mean, I think she luckily has the the background and the education to be able to fuel herself right and, and make those strategic decisions. But when you're taking on a, a challenge of this magnitude, it's just so hard to get the calories in that you need. I think my only experience of talking with people are people who do multi-day and and often many week trips of of backpacking and hiking. And when they're talking about having to carry their food and consume the volume of calories that they need, they're they're looking at foods like olive oil and you know peanut butter that are just have the the highest mm. caloric density possible. So on top of needing to fuel yourself right, you've got to ingest that while you're exercising for hours on end and take a real toll on your body and your your digestive tract for sure. Well, she's certainly doing a great job of that at this point. Bonnie continuing to make her way around Australia, her paddle of Australia, which is sponsored by Shore and Partners. Make sure you jump online and follow her journey because, gee, it's not short of a thrill, that's for sure. Number two. He is back. Two-time world champion Sean Rice, after an absence of about two years as well from the racing scene, has announced on social media that he is getting back in the boat, racing at the Euro Challenge in Spain coming up in this European summer. And he is determined to get back to the top of the world as well. We were a little bit unsure about what Sean's movements were going to be. He's become a father now since the pandemic began. He said by his own admission that he hasn't been doing a whole lot of paddling over the last couple of years, but now... The fire has been lit and he is going after a third world title. Austin, this is fantastic news for the entire racing community all around the world. Literal chills. I mean, yeah, really exciting. And I just don't think a world champs feels like a world champs without Sean Rice there. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about in the men's field, one of three athletes to ever take down a world title and to have done it twice. Super exciting. I, I'm a, a friend of Sean's and, and, and consider myself lucky to be one. And I'm really excited to see him coming back to the sport and not just coming back casually, but coming back to, to compete at the highest level. Yeah, I caught up with Sean the other night, checked in and had a yarn about how everything's been going. And he said, what, you didn't think I was going to stop paddling, did you? He's like, you know, I'm never going to stop paddling. But I don't know, I guess with fatherhood and life and work, all these things get in the way. And it's been such a long time since we've last raced, you know. It, you don't really know where to stand on, you know, young guys coming through or whether the the more experienced paddlers still had that determination. But he says, no, nah, the fire's there. Like, I want to win a world title. And I love hearing that intent from Sean because when he makes that declaration, you know that he's going to do everything in his power to get there too. Absolutely. And I think, you know, putting it out there in the world like he did – is is half the battle you know it, it's the kind of decision to really commit to a goal and commit to moving forward and I, I'm sure that many of the listeners on this podcast can resonate with the fact that it's been challenging to to set your sights on a race just with races coming and going and the uncertainty in the last few years so I think it's so exciting that he's really put his stamp on this world champs and, and committed to to coming back and, and showing us the Sean of old. So I agree with with him and with you that we, I don't think we ever expected him not to be paddling, but I can speak from experience that it's these last few years makes you change your perspective and you have to move on with certain things and you can't give it your a hundred percent the for for always. So I'm really excited uh, that Sean is able to balance, you know, being a father to Sebi, uh, husband to Emily, and, and I know he's going full on in his career too, so it's really exciting that he's found uh, found the will and the way to add 
trying to get another world title under his belt to that list of responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're going to be seeing Sean and all of the rest of the elite athletes from around the world competing at a number of events throughout the year. The Gorge is going to be a really big one this year too, Austin God, We could speak all day about that, but looks like there's going to be a really big turn up at the Gorge as well as a few races across Europe. But it sounds as though that the World Championships is certainly one that Sean is looking towards. And he did have that kind of same trajectory in 2019 as well when he claimed his second World Championships in France. By his own admission, it was a bit of a slow start to the season. He didn't get that win at the Nello Summer Challenge, which was in Portugal. From there, though, he built throughout the season. And by the time September came around for those world titles, he was absolutely flying. I think that in his mind as well, he knows that Portugal has been one of his most successful locations for racing too. Not only all the summer challenges that he's won over the years, but gee, it would make a pretty nice fairy tale story, wouldn't it, that he comes back and wins a third world title in Portugal, 10 years on from winning his first one there back in 2013. Yeah, you just certainly paint quite the the picture there. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's an interesting balance of surf ski athletes in particular because we race in both the Northern and Southern Hemisphere. When you're trying to chase that circuit, you end up dragging a season on for what can be, you know, nine months of racing. So it was really interesting to watch him win the title in 2019 when, per se, the beginning of his season wasn't the form that we usually see from Sean. But I think there's something to be said about so many other athletes in different sports really choose A races and don't expect themselves to be at top peak performance all year long. They, they kind of see other races or B category races as important as they are and as well as they want to compete in those as competitive athletes who, who always you know want that gold medal when they put themselves on the line. I think it's really interesting approach to to kind of build towards one central race and expect your, your best performance only to be one time a year. I'll tell you the thing that I'm most relieved to hear as well is that knowing that when we all do come back together for those first few big races of the year, everyone will be there. I know that some of the, or maybe I shouldn't say older, but some of the older generation guys like Hank McGregor and the Mockers, they've been so enthusiastic about their racing over the last couple of years too. It seems as like everyone has had that renewed kind of sense of motivation. In fact, Sean, our first ever guest on the Paddlers Pod, he said at the time in that interview that he thought COVID was going to prolong his career. We were laughing about that the other night on the phone saying, well, that didn't quite turn out like I thought. It was a bit longer of a break than I thought, but it's great to know that everyone will be there and is fired up to have a red hot crack with each other too. You're so right there. And I think that was one of the other points I wanted to make is I think Sean is back and raring to go wanting that title, but I think there are so many other incredible athletes who have the same ambition. So I think that's what's going to make Portugal electric and just such a fun race to watch this year is there are so many people who have been denied the chance to compete on an international field and are hungry to prove that either A, they've made a breakthrough and are in another strata than they ever have been before, someone like Nicky Naughton or, you know, uh, we're ta- looking at Tom Norton, who mm. are just at competing now at a level that they, they've just transcended to that top echelon. And then you've got people like, Hank and Jasper and Sean and Corey who have been there at the top and are excited and rejuvenated and really looking to put their stamp on the championship races as well. Gets me excited. It gets me really excited for what's Mm. going to be a huge year of racing to come as we finally get back into a routine. Number one. Now, Austin, we did report on the last episode of the Paddlers pod that Molokai will not be happening in 2022, but since then... I've had a chance to be able to chat with Jim Fody from the Kanaka Okaika Racing Association about the decision and the factors that came into it. So they did put out a statement when that decision was first announced as contributing a variety of factors, but the more I spoke to Jim, the more it became quite clear that it was the response from the Molokai community that essentially ruled the race out this year. And it really creates an interesting situation for the race moving forward as well, because As Jim said in the article, which you can read on the Padlet.news, he was saying that there isn't quite a united front on Molokai about how to best move forward and reintegrate with the rest of the global society as well, with COVID still being a threat. 
But as he said, you just have to respect the local community. He acknowledged that there is no law that says the event can't go ahead, but he and the Racing Association made the decision that they wanted to be able to run hand in hand with the community and be invited back in the future and make this a race that has the support of all of those on Molokai. Austin, let's just start there with that point. It's a tough decision to make because, like Jim acknowledged, if you really wanted to, the race could happen this year, but it's all about creating the type of event that you're proud to be able to put your name to and that you're proud to be able to showcase to the rest of the world. And in Hawaii, community is a really big one. And I guess this probably was the only way forward for them this year. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It's, it's a really tough question. I think I have really mixed uh, feelings about it as a racer, but also as a member of the community. I, I think I completely understand where Jim's coming from. But at the same time, you know, it was a race that I, I had set my sights on of really wanting to do in 2022. So mm. I think when it comes to the community and, and making that decision, I think ultimately the decision was the right one. As I, I know I read the, the article that you posted, which, which spoke about it being more than just a race for Jim and, and for the Hawaiian people. And I think that really... Is, is the core of it is Molokai is a special island and it, its community has has needs that may be different from the other islands on Hawaii. I know that Oahu is really opened up and they've started their racing season and there are events happening pretty regularly. But I think Molokai has always felt a bit of pride of being a bit separate from the rest of the islands and, and has much less of a culture of tourism and, and wanting to have people over there. So I think it's a real honor that we are able to race starting on Molokai and, and cross the Channel of Bones. So I think the the call to ensure that when the race does move forward, it's 100% supported by the Molokai community is is the right decision, as challenging as it is for me to to take as an athlete who's who's really excited to, to cross that channel again in a race format. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Jim did go to a town hall meeting on Molokai to discuss whether the race would or wouldn't go ahead. And as he says, it was a really good opportunity for him to actually come face to face with some of the key stakeholders in the community and explain his point of view as well. I'll read a direct quote from Jim in what he did say in that article. He said, we want Molokai to look at these events and feel like they're a part of it, as opposed to being a simple channel crossing. We want the island to be integrated into the event. It gives us an opportunity to look towards 2023 and come up with some synergies that make the locals happy, and in turn, all of us happy on the racing side. So look, the big question moving forward is, will the race be able to run next year? If the community don't want it to happen now, what is to stop them turning around next year and saying, look, we don't want the race to come back then either. And Jim admits that maybe it won't come back next year. He's pretty confident it will, but he said that that's not something he can declare with certainty at the moment, which kind of makes me anxious from a racing point of view because, well, I haven't done the race before. I was going to do it this year, and I dare say if it's on next year, I will do it then. So I'm really excited to, to want to get over there. Shoreham Partners has signed up as the new major sponsor of the race, so it has a positive future in the financial aspect. But I guess, again, as you would have found in your experiences having done the race in 2018, I believe was your last, you, you would know that it's all about trying to create that community atmosphere during the event, and I guess that has to come first. Yeah, Sam, I think you bring up a bunch of interesting points. I think, firstly... It is a scary time for the race. The race is one of the, I think it is the longest standing, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to speak uh, where I don't know, but I know that it is one of the longest standing races. I know that it shaped the the actual construction of what we now paddle today as the, the distance ocean ski. And I think it's, it's such an iconic event that it would be such a tragedy for the event to never revive after COVID. But I think we really have to, to be honest with ourselves that it, it's a decision that 
per se is not up to us and, and not up to those who are really passionate about the event and about the sport like Jim. It's it's ultimately a decision that's going to come down to the Molokai people and if, if they feel it's an event that they want to support. You know, at the end of the day, the race isn't the Channel of the Bones. It's not the crossing. It's not Oahu. It's Molokai. And so I think there's a mystique about the island and there's a, a, a mystique about the fact that it starts there and that you are on an island that you wouldn't normally travel to when you when you travel to Hawaii for vacation or for travel or for tourism. So I think it really does come down to the Molokai people wanting it to be something that, that's part of their lives and their culture as well as, as our incredible event. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's part of where the I guess the prestige of the race comes from, you know, Molokai is one of the most famous races in the paddling community, but it's certainly not the richest and it's certainly not the biggest in terms of participation. So everyone who goes there and does it clearly has it held in such high regard that it has built this aura around the race. And for me, that's part of the really interesting view looking forward as well, even in this year alone. So five different organizations run the five different Molokai to Oahu crossings. So there's two versions of the six-person canoe races, one for men and women, which are organized by separate organizations. There's the paddleboard championships, and then there's the PAA's OC1 championships. Now, as far as Jim understands, all of those races won't go ahead except for the OC1. There is suggestion that they are tossing up whether to run some kind of maverick event or not, even without the Molokai community's support. So that's certainly going to have a lot of eyeballs on it. And that's going to paint a really clear picture about what would happen if the surf ski race did the same thing moving forward, because I don't think that's going to be received too well by the community there. No, I certainly, I hope, I hadn't heard that the OC1 event was moving forward. And I well, think not it's, officially. It's, they are, they okay. are looking into running a Maverick event, but they aren't officially going to run yet. Yeah, I think it would be a real shame, to be honest. I think I, I totally understand with the organizers and the, the athletes who want to compete. But as so many of the other iconic channel crossings have already nodded in respect to the decision made by uh, the Molokai people, I think it would be a real shame to not only try to move forward without the understanding that it's something that the the people of Molokai want. And also it, it potentially jeopardizes the goodwill of Molokai for all of the events moving into 2023. So I, I as much as I understand the feeling as an athlete who would have loved to compete in 2022, I really hope that, that all of the, the different organizations respect that decision and we can give the Molokai people the time needed to uh, to make the, the right decisions and, and kind of deal with what they, I'm sure is a, is a really trying time. And, and then hopefully in 2023, we can all enjoy that crossing together and, and we can do that with the support of Molokai. So Surfski Paddlers, all we can do now is sit back and wait. The race has major sponsorship secured for 2023. The only thing that it does need in order to be able to go ahead is that community approval. So hopefully in 12 months time, we're talking about the race coming up and we're doing a preview rather than what could have been for perhaps the most iconic event in the surf ski world. I almost forgot Austin, that's the end of our power plays. We've had so much fun speaking about what's going on in the surf ski world at the moment. Now it's time for us to talk about you, Austin Careful. We will be speaking through your paddling journey in just a moment after this short ad break. Austin, I'm so glad to hear that you're now living back on the coast again, but I want to make sure that you've got all of the right tools to get the most out of your training. Check out washrider.com because they have got everything you need. Do you putter with resistance bands at all? I actually do, Sam. Do you? Wow, good. What a coincidence of timing. I don't know about you, but I used to previously just drill a hole in some tennis balls and try and jam an Oki strap through the tennis balls if I was using heavy resistance. And that's an example of what Wash Rider has thought of. Kieran Babich is a paddler himself. He has left nothing to chance. And on his website, washrider.com, you'll find whatever you need. I'm talking about weed deflectors. I'm talking about tie-downs, roof racks with tie-downs built in. As if you couldn't come up with any kind of better solution for surf ski paddlers around the world. Whatever you need... 
head to washrider.com and check it out. Austin, you like that the sound of that idea, don't you? Roof racks with the straps built in. <laughs> you know what? I actually... No joke, was listening to the Paddler's Pod a few months ago when the first Wash Rider commercial came on. I went out to, to check them out myself. And it really is a, a candy store for surf ski paddlers and, and just paddlers in general. I absolutely geek out about everything, gadgets and gears and accessories. And there are so few providers out there. And when I went to Wash Rider and saw they have resistance, they have deflectors, they have weed guards, they've got myriad different trinkets and, and things that's going to impact the way that you paddle and improve your experience on the water. So, uh, yeah, I, I really love what they're doing and, and would recommend anyone who's looking for the accessory and the right accessory to check out Wash Rider. It's funny actually mentioning the weed deflectors because for me, when I first went on the website, it's one of the smallest items on there, but that was the one that stood out because how many races have we gone to around the world where we've got a little bit of carbon that we're going to use as a weed deflector. Sometimes it's being cut and kind of sanded back to fit and then we're trying to super glue the bottom of it onto the boat. Whereas Kieran's actually looked at it and gone, why don't I just make an ergonomic one and have it a, as a stick on that you can just peel back the paper and actually stick it on and it's so much easier of a process. Mate, I actually, funny that you bring that up because one year at the doctor, my weed deflector was knocked off in transit. No. And if I had had one of those in my life jacket just to be able to stick on, I, I ended up begging some glue off someone who was there and <laughs> folded up a credit card into a triangle no and glued a credit card uh, behind my rudder. Yeah, that's actually a really good so, thought about uh, the. That's a really good thought about the doctor in that you could actually just take one of the weed deflectors. I think they're only about fifteen dollars, and you can just put it in your life jacket when you get your boat off and you're putting the rudder in. Just stick it on yourself, and we're good to go. I think honestly, that's what I would do because when you take the rudder off and you're sliding the boats in and out, it's just inevitable that they're gonna something that is sticking out from the boat is gonna catch on the rack as you slide it in and out. So I think it's a, a great idea just to to bring a, a weed deflector with you so you don't have to worry about if the thing gets knocked off in transit. So paddlers, take that tip to the doctor this year and take this little gift with you as well. If you punch in the code the paddlers pod, that's one word, no apostrophes, the paddlers pod, you're going to get 10% off. Washrider.com for all of your paddling needs. It's hard to know exactly where to start when discussing Austin Kiefer's paddling journey, but I guess the logical place is right back at the beginning because it could have been so different, Austin. You didn't start in a surf ski and you didn't grow up around the ocean or surf clubs like so many paddlers around the world. You actually started in a kayak and a whitewater kayak, no less. That is true. Yeah, I, I started in whitewater and my first decade of paddling was, was all whitewater slalom. So never touched a wing blade, never touched a surf ski or a K1. Uh, until I, I kind of was done with my, my whitewater racing career. Man, look, I've heard you speak about this a bit before in the past, but the thing that always strikes me about your transition into the surf ski is, I guess, essentially how quick you took it up. So talk us through how that first came about. And when you started paddling a surf ski and paddling downwind, did you get a sense for, okay, like I feel pretty comfortable in this or... I think I'm actually doing pretty well at this. How did that kind of pan out for you? Because it's a big jump to go from even being such a talented whitewater slalom paddler, but to become one of the best surf ski paddlers in the world, it's a huge transition. Yeah, it was a really tough transition, but I think I was very lucky that it went about as smoothly as I think it could have for me. There, there are times now in my life where I really wish I had, uh, I had picked up the ski earlier as I feel like... I've always struggled a bit with with my flat water background and just having that mastery of the flat water stroke and, and that specific endurance. But I think there are other pieces that really lent it, my background in whitewater, the experience there really lent itself to learning downwind quickly and being really comfortable in the ocean and, and messier water. So I think to answer the first part of your question there, I actually got into it from a good friend of mine. His name is DJ 
Jacobson. Anyone who's been at the Gorge might have bumped into him, but he's an incredible guy, and he was a mentor of mine back when I was doing Whitewater, um, actually coached me when I was a kid, and then we became friends. But he, one summer after a racing, he was like, you know what, I think you would really love surf ski. You should come out with me uh, to try to do the San Francisco race. Um, I'll put you in a boat for two weeks, and we'll see if you uh, if you like it. And Started out those first two weeks all in flat water training with him in Bellingham and fell in love with it and then went to San Fran, caught my first wave and was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that the surfing aspect was part of it and I was already <laughs> obsessed and now I'm just done. Yeah, just absolutely fell in love with the sport and kind of went full on into it after that. And with success as well, Austin, look, it may have felt like a long time for you, but for me watching on the outside, it was a very sharp climb towards the very top of the sport as well. You've podiumed at some of the biggest races around the world. For you, how has that journey been? And, you know, do you get a sense for the fact that, yeah, I have transitioned through this pretty quickly? Or how have you found that journey towards the elite end of racing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for me, it's been... It was easy in parts and really challenging in parts. So to, to kind of expand on that, I felt like I mastered downwind and learned how to surf really efficiently it, at a rate much faster than many of the other athletes that I know in the sport, even the ones who kind of started in a more of a ski background. So I feel really grateful that that I was pretty gifted in the downwind arena, but I have felt like my journey to being a competitive and competent athlete in the flat water and on the fitness side of things has been a much longer and more arduous experience for me. And I, I think that if you look at the races I've done really well in, they've all been downwind events. Like I podiumed at the doctor when it was an incredible downwind in 2017. And I've, I've raced traditionally pretty well at the gorge and was second in 2019. And that was a great wind year. So I think it's, I don't think I ever really achieved the level of mastery I was hoping to when it comes to that flat water fitness and that raw athleticism in the, the flat water and in, in the calm ocean. But I, I feel like I progressed really quickly and, and mastered very quickly the, the art of downwinding, if you will. How much of that do you owe to the skills that you used in slalom and whitewater paddling? Because there's only one other paddler that I can think of at the top of my head who's been able to make that transition with that same kind of level of success as well, and that's French paddler Victor Du, who grew up in Lyon. He had never really paddled in the ocean before until he started paddling surf ski, and he's won some big races around Europe now. There's obviously something in there that helps that transition. Yeah, I think having an understanding of working with the water versus it's all your own effort. I think one of the things that I, I, I can't speak to wild water or, or any of the other river sports, but I know for slalom, you're not just giving your best run out there, you're working with the river and you're making sure that all of your effort is in harmony with the energy of the river. And I think that is very much on brand with with what it takes to be a great downwind athlete is, you know, you, you've got to be fit and you've got to be strong and you've got to be able to put in really hard efforts and to do it repeatedly. But it's also about you got to know when to paddle and you've got to really harness the energy of the of the wind and waves and, and really try to not overpower things back to the start of some of those major races that you lined up in must have been a bit of a shock hey clashing paddles boats jamming against each other pack racing off the start with people from the other side of the world what was that experience like in entering a sport where although you were so comfortable in a kayak i guess essentially you're a bit of an outsider that's actually you know i've never been asked that question but i it really resonates with me because it is such a difference. In slalom, you're, you're started in staggered intervals. So you're only ever competing with yourself, by yourself on the river. Mm. And to transition to a race where you could actually see your competitor right beside you. And, and I try to make a point of lining up next to 
the person or people I think are going to perform really well in that event. So it's it's really it's it's a very fun experience to be able to be right next to the person that you're trying to compete with. And it was definitely shocking to be in a mass start event where not only are you clashing paddles with people, but it's uh, it, there can be some liberal interpretations of when the start gun goes and, uh, <laughs> and when you're allowed to start paddling. Oh, I can imagine your first doctor as well, where that that's a really cramped start line. And it is a one kilometer sprint to that turn before you start hitting the open ocean. Like, had you done racing before where you are jamming your boat into other people's and paddles are hitting each other and you do need to get aggressive like that? Uh, no, never. Uh, you know, I've ha I had a little bit of experience in, in my lead up before the first doctor. And, and luckily, I spent a little bit of time in South Africa, which was definitely an incredible learning ground when it came to scrappy racing and, and not being afraid to to put your boat paddle and body in the place where you wanted to be and, and didn't really care who else was there. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a learning experience for me, but I love that physicality of racing. And, uh, I've, I just hope that, uh, one day I can, uh, I can actually feature at a start like you do and, uh, have that speed off the line always has been a weakness of mine. I think I would rather be there at the end, like you have on top of the, <laughs> on the podium at the doctor, rather than just being there at the start. But look, that's the physical side of things. You mentioned there that, you know, you're used to racing yourself in the slalom world. Do you think that kind of mental comfort has helped you in downwind racing in those events like the doctor where, you know, you can split off on your own line and you've got no one around you but I guess racing on your own is something that you've done for so long before. Yeah, I don't think I've ever thought of it like that, but I, I definitely think that as much as it will start in a pack and that events that are a little bit flatter will often really have athletes bunching up together and pretty tightly together, I think in the best conditions of a downwind, you're, you're really... Uh, solo time trialing in a lot of respects like I think the, my favorite part of downwinding is when you're downwind dicing and dancing with someone else but it's hard to do that with many other competitors than just one or a couple so it, you really need to be comfortable out there finding your own rhythm and your own zone and your own threshold for what you can push and what you can sustain and, and where you can eke the most speed out of both your your body your energy and and the waves by your own admission you say that you aren't racing as seriously as you have in the past but you must be pretty excited about the gorge this year it's a race that you've done so well at for so long and last year you claimed your first victory at the event although you said at the time that it didn't quite feel like that breakthrough because there wasn't a full international field there what about this year? Because there is going to be, well, it looks like a huge international field there. I am, to say excited about the Gorge, I think is is understating it. I am thrilled uh, that not only is the Gorge going to be back again this year, but I'm so excited for the international field that's coming. I think I've been a bit annoying. I've been reaching out to to team manufacturers uh, and athletes alike, asking who's coming, are they bringing athletes, you know, what the field's going to look like. I, I definitely felt a sense of, of accomplishment, but also a real disappointment that uh, that my first win or and my first uh, Gorge victory was with no international athletes. And I really hope that the field is back this year. And regardless of my performance, I'm so excited to have a deep field again at the Gorge. And I, I hope that I can, uh, I can feature again on the podium. And, and who knows, maybe it's, it's the year when uh, that I can you know, make it all the way to that top step with a deep field there. I have absolutely no doubt. And I would love to ask more questions about the Gorge and the intricacies involved in that race. But I think we're going to come back and do that a little bit closer to the event because I want to speak to you about one of your other focuses now, and that's helping to bring through the generation of American paddlers that is on the rise. Anna Swedish is the most obvious candidate. You've spent so much time with her, and, well, isn't she just doing unbelievably well? She's one of the most gifted downwind paddlers I think I've seen in my time in the sport, but I know there's many more coming as well. How much of a passion is that for you now to help show the way for the, the new paddlers coming through? 
Sam, it's one thing that I find incredibly rewarding is watching the youth in America come through. Particularly Anna, I've I've considered myself very lucky to be a friend and a mentor, and I hope she would say the same thing that that I provide some value um, in uh, helping on her journey, but. I, I really enjoy working with Anna. She's so passionate and enthusiastic about paddling, and I, I see all the the best parts of myself and, and many um, incredible parts that I lack in her, and I think she truly is the future of American surf ski. I think it's really exciting that she's bringing American surf ski to, to an international stage that that you know we've never had a, a podium finish in the world before her and i think not only is it really cool that she's doing it for the sport but i think it's so exciting that she's doing it for the female field um i think we've seen our sport be so male dominated for so long and i think she is one of the athletes at the forefront of bringing gender equity to our sport and i think it's it's really exciting and it's something i i've been really grateful to be a part of in her journey and, and watch her grow. Is there a certain sense of nationalism or or national pride that is helping to drive that passion? Because like you mentioned there, you know, the United States isn't necessarily a surf ski powerhouse on the same stage as Australia and South Africa. But for you, you've spent so long breaking through into the sport and also breaking any stereotypes around international paddlers you know, who aren't Australian or South African as well, and showing people that, no, we can paddle too, no doubt that must be part of the passion for you now. It's a great question, and I, I'm certainly proud of, you know, the small role that I played and the, the much larger role that I think Anna is playing and will continue to play. But I think it's it's really, for me, watching Anna, it's about her enthusiasm for the sport and hoping that that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of a beacon will really trickle down to everyday athletes and grow the sport as a whole in the U.S. I think the pride is just as much the hope that her example will grow the sport as it is seeing an American um, on international podiums. Do you feel as though in your own career you've been somewhat of a pioneer in helping to break through for American paddlers? Um, I, I think perhaps less of a pioneer in, in terms of breaking through and hopefully more an example that even without the training groups and the coaches and the infrastructure that may exist in in other countries like South Africa and Australia, where it might just be a little bit easier to, to pick up a ski and learn from world champions and, and masters of the sport, that, you know, with enthusiasm and passion and a really a dedicated pursuit of the craft that there is a level of excellence that you can reach even calling America home. In fact, I do just want to ask one more question on that because look, we have something up our sleeves anyway that we've been throwing around ideas for. But I want to ask you about that element there, having trained on your own. It has to have been a really big learning experience and an intention to learn as well, going out and trying to find out what other paddlers are doing around the world. Because I know for me here in Australia, the path has always been so clear. When I started ski paddling, I did so under a two-time Olympian who's won plenty of downwind races, won surf life-saving ski titles at Australia. But for you, you've had to figure all this out for yourself. That's a, a great question. It's actually a huge passion of mine. In the beginning, when I was first learning, I had no understanding of the mechanics of surf ski paddling stroke, you know, the, the flat water kayak stroke. I didn't realize that you used your legs so heavily and that there was so much hip and leg movement. Um, you know, in whitewater, your legs are completely locked and there's no movement of the leg um, and they're locked into the boat in a, in a fixed position. So I was watching YouTube videos and trying to figure this thing out for myself and, and teaching myself. And I think my whole career has been a, a balance between incredible fortune in the sense that I've made some remarkable friends in South Africa and Australia who have opened their doors and their insights into the sport. And I've really been able to learn from people like Jasper and David Maka, Sean Rice, 
Corey Hill, and it, it's been it's been a really fun journey to find this balance of trying to spend time with the people who are doing it at the very highest level and learn as much as I can from them, and then trying to fill in the gaps and and do everything I can to to build myself up as an athlete who's coaching themselves and and trying to teach themselves not only the technical aspects of the sport, but also just the structure of of how best do you train for uh, distance ocean ski. Oh, mate, I could sit here and talk to you all day about paddling. You're so passionate about it, and that that passion is so infectious as well. Austin Kiefer, you should be so proud of everything that you have achieved in the sport too, because it certainly isn't lost upon the rest of the world. You did mention at the very start there that you wanted to work on your start speed a little bit more. Well, we do have one more thing up our sleeve that might help you do that, and that is our 10 double segment, which this episode is brought to you by Wash Rider. So Austin, I know that you're a passionate listener of the podcast as well. We're going to ask you the same 10 questions that we ask to each of our guests, and we want you to try and answer them as quickly as possible. So Austin, are you ready? Yeah, I don't know. I should have done more study, and I listen to this every time. But I, 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 if you know, gun to my head, I don't think I know the ten. So, I'll try to be as quick as I can and, and work on my start speed. That's good. I like the honesty, Austin. Question number one: What paddle length and angle do you use? I actually use a forty-five degree angle, which is a an angle that I brought from Whitewater. Um, so it's I know it's a pretty atypical angle when it comes to many ski paddlers. And then my length is 212 uh, for flat water and, and most conditions, which I know is a bit shorter than a lot of the top athletes. And it will actually get even shorter in the downwind. And I find in big downwind conditions, I, I can go as low as 10, 210 and a half. Question number two, what's the fastest kilometer you've ever recorded? Ooh, you know, I'm embarrassed after Nikki Naughton's 249 uh, to, <laughs> to say this aloud and be proud of it. Um, but my, my fastest was a 257. So maybe this weekend I can try to clock a faster one. Hey, that's a sub three. That's no easy achievement. Question number three, what's the furthest you've paddled in one session? Ooh, um probably would be around oh no i take this back this one i forgot about um very early on uh during that early time when my friend dj was teaching me how to paddle he took me on a 50 mile surf ski paddle in a double so i think i'm gonna i'm terrible at the the conversion here but it was something in the ballpark of I think that's about 80 kilometers. Yeah, I think it was. it's about 80K. Um, you wow. Know, 70s, 80K. So that was my longest one. But since then, I think the longest I've been has been mid-50s to prep for, um, prep for the Molokai. Question number four. What's your go-to pre-race pump-up song? <laughs> oh, man. I definitely should have been listening to more podcasts right before this. Um <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a complete blank here. Um, I'll give you the backup question, okay. which is Macca's favorite for question number four, which is question number four. What's your go-to pre-race meal? Ooh, uh, that is a, is a much better one. I actually really like uh, white rice and chicken pre-race. I think it's just uh, really easy for me to digest. And, you know, even though it's it's not got any greens on there, it's probably a, a lower likelihood of, of anything getting in there and gunking up the system. Question number five, what's your favorite race in the world? That is a really tough one because I think it's it's going to be a pretty close tie between the Gorge and the Doctor. Um, I think both in my mind. There'd be uh, dramas if you don't say the Gorge. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got to say the Gorge. Um, but truly, <laughs> it's, the, it's the place I learned to surf. And it's uh, a race that I hold very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's also the one I've done the best in. So it's kind of hard not to put it up there. Um, but yeah, I'm obsessed with the Gorge. But I think the Doctor is, it's a crossing it's just a, a, a magical distance. There is very often wind. I think it's also so unique in the sense that it's got a completely flat, you know, 2K to 1.5K start. Then it goes into runs that build. They're at a slight angle, and then you turn that center marker, and you've got it right at your back. And then a beach run, it just, 
I think it's like the archetypical surf ski race. You know, it embodies everything that is surf ski and has all of the elements, I think, that, that really make a legendary event. Um, so I would say Gorge and, and the Doctor. Question number six, what's your ultimate racing war story? Man, I, I, I feel like Nikki stole all my thunder here, but uh, <laughs> I was on the same boat with him when it burnt down as we were traveling to the start. So, um, That is a classic story. Oh, yeah. I've never heard it until Nikki told me. Crazy. I think it was, you know, of the, the people that I, I can remember off the top of my head, it was, it was Tom Skilperut, Sean Rice, Kenny Rice, Nikki, and myself. I know at least were the people who were, you know, in my near circle who were traveling over together. And it was just a crazy experience of I went from being anxious and worried about the race to like being anxious and worried about burning to death and the boat going down and us having to abandon ship and losing, you know, it was just a, a very, uh, <laughs> it was a, quite an experience. And unfortunately, it had the opposite effect for me as it did for Sean and, and Nikki in the sense that I had a horrible race afterwards and they seemed to... <laughs> you know, kick into that other gear. So I need to take some notes, I guess. Oh, dear. Question number seven, who is the greatest paddler of all time? Oh, man. I actually, this one I was anticipating and I'm I'm very firmly not going to respond because I have many <laughs> friends who are... That is so typical of you. I knew you wouldn't want to say, gee, you're not going to like the question about throwing someone under the bus either. Far out. <laughs> yeah, certainly I'm, 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 uh, I'm going to abstain from any bus injuries and I, I, I cannot say anyone that comes to name. But I think for me, there are, I would say that there are, are four athletes that really have shaped the way I see the sport and have, I have incredible respect for, not only because I think that they are champions and each one of them at a certain point in their career was the best in the world, but also because they've been so kind and generous to me in, in sharing their expertise and, and championship wisdom. And I would say that's David, Jasper, Maka, um, Sean Rice, and Corey Hill. Um, you know, I think, uh, I don't think you can have a conversation about the best in the world without those four names being, being in the conversation. I love it, Austin. Question number eight, should we just skip this? Who is the worst trainer you've ever come across? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I speak no ill of, of friends and foes, so uh, let's, uh, let's skip that one. <laughs> Question number nine, what do you rate as your greatest paddling achievement? Oh. And I want to stress too that this doesn't have to just be a race result either. It can be a contribution around paddling off the water as well. Yeah, I, I think I would say two things come to mind for me. Um, I would say the first is being able to be a part of, of Anna's journey as I truly see her as the future of the sport, not only in the U.S., but I think she is going to feature on the world stage for many years to come. And I, 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 I see a small part of my relationship with her as being like the relationship I have with DJ who helped me get started in the sport and supported me in so many ways. So I, I really value being able to be a part of her journey and, and, uh, and it, it's everything from watching her grow and, and hopefully adding a little bit of kernel of wisdom where I can. And, and also she constantly um, ignites the passion again in me. And we just recently had a challenge where we were going to see who could paddle more in a month to get uh, both of us through the winter and through uh, firing up our training again. So I think that has been one thing that's really stood out for me in my life and my career and continues to. And then I'd say the other one that's more of a personal thing was uh, the first race where I really felt like I was there contending uh, at an international stage. And that was 2017 Canadian downwind champs. Um, I had never really featured at a big race before. I'd been fifth and fourth a couple of times, but only because, you know, the people who were vying for the podium fell off throughout the race and I kind of picked off the carcasses. Um, <laughs> but at the Canadian champs in 2017, 
I, I raced the entire race in a podium spot and was third for the majority of the race and got passed by Jasper in the last 2K of the race. And even though I finished fourth and that was you know, on par with my, my best result to date at that time, it was an experience that was foreign to me and being able to be there at the hot spot, be mixing it up in the downwind and be, you know, racing to the bitter end for a podium finish was was something that I always remember and something I was really proud of, especially because it's it's not an event that's that's known as a downwind race as much as some of the other events that I've done well in. That's an incredible insight. Austin Kiefer, question number 10. Finish this sentence. I'm a paddler because... I love it. And I love that. Austin Kiefer, thank you so much for joining us on the Paddlers Pod. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for all the work that you do for the surf ski community. You should be so proud of the barriers that you have broken down for American paddling because there are plenty on their way to progress through it. Oh, Matt, I, Sam, I really appreciate it. I'm a little speechless. I'm so honored to be a, a guest and a guest host on the Paddlers Pod. And I could never do it as well as Macca does, but it's been a true honor and I really appreciate your time. And, and hopefully for anyone who's, who's stuck around and is still listening, I, I hope you uh, enjoyed this episode. So there it is, Austin Kiefer, our guest host on episode 25 of the Paddlers Pod. That's a bit of a landmark achievement. I should have celebrated that throughout the episode. Gee, he's such a passionate paddler. He's such a good speaker too. I could have listened to Austin talk all day about all things surf ski, so no doubt we'll get him back at some point in future. The next episode, the big dog's back. Mackenzie Heinard will return to the Paddlers Pod. Until then, make sure you do jump online, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, that always helps too. And tell your friends about it, because Surf Ski is all about sharing the stoke. Until then guys, happy paddling, be safe on the water and take care. Enjoy. The Paddler's Pod with Sam and Mecca.